Welcome back to another Cardinals off day and therefore another Cardinals uh, off day podcast. Uh, as we record this before the final game against Cincinnati, the Cardinals are 23 and 17 on pace to win 93 games. Uh, and so this is Ben Godar. As always, I'm joined by Ben Humphrey. And this week, uh, we are also joined by now official friend of the pod, Alex Crisofuli. So Alex, thank you so much for being our, our first guest on the show. Thank you so much for having me. You know, since you all started this, I marveled at the very first episode at how effortlessly you guys did this. It sounded as though you've been doing it forever. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to screwing up the chemistry that you two have uh, built between well, you on this show. Well, that was the eighth or ninth take. And there were a lot of <laughs> tears and kind of uh, emotional battles uh, that you didn't hear recorded. But uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, ben, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing well. Um, last night, uh, Mother Nature smiled on us uh, here in my neighborhood because we had a thunderstorm come through and it knocked out the internet for our service area. And that meant that I was unable to watch any of the Cardinals Padres game <laughs> uh, because we are cord cutters. And so uh, I was spared the anguish of watching the team get knocked around by the Padres all night, basically. So uh, the internet obviously is now working because uh, we're recording the podcast, and um, I'm really excited uh, to have Alex on and to see Alex again. Because I was thinking about this, you know, we're doing this with the video. I think the last time that we saw Alex was when, or at least when I saw him, was when he was in Des Moines and we went to the Iowa Cubs game uh, way back when. Uh, it feels like a decade ago with the uh, pandemic and everything. And so, uh, welcome, Alex. Um, and we're very excited to have you as a friend of the pod. Thank you very much. That, yes, that was August 2017. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Flaherty may have been on the mound that night. And I also think Luke Voigt hit a bomb um, to uh, center field. Uh, so two guys who now seem like they've been in the majors for much longer than <laughs> that, actually, I believe were playing in that game. I know Voigt was, and I do think Flaherty started that night. That may well have been. Alex, I always marvel at your ability to remember the specifics of games, like either when we're talking or even just when I'm listening to chirps, you have very, very specific recollections of what happened in games. And I'm often more like, oh, I think the Cardinals were well, kind of good-ish at that time. Yeah. Well, I've you all have probably been to hundreds of Iowa Cubs games, whereas I've been to one. So maybe that's why I, I remember it well. Right. You you tend to only stop during cross-country moves is kind of your, <laughs> right. your schedule. Right. So so next time one of those happens, we look forward to seeing you there again. Uh, so anyway, uh, as we kind of tend to start things off, uh, thought we'd touch on what we feel like we learned uh, since our last pod, which is about a week ago. Uh, Alex, as the guest, do you mind uh, kicking us off? What do you feel like you've learned in the last week or so? Well, I don't know if this is something that I've learned, but something that has been reinforced, which is that as much as we, or I don't know if we, but people complain about Paul DeYoung in terms of, you know, mostly from the offensive side of the ball, he's a really valuable member of this team, and it really shows when we are without him. Uh, and and maybe that's on the organization for not having a better, uh, I guess, contingency plan there for when Paul DeYoung 
is on the IL like he is now, but I, I got to say, I'm, I am missing Paul DeYoung right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Ben, how about you? Um, uh, I was going to say that something along the same lines, uh, I think that, and I've been guilty of this a little bit too, I think that maybe uh, we un- underappreciate not only Paul DeYoung, but also Carlos Martinez and Miles Michaelis. Uh, it's nice to have an Oviedo uh, as depth, but when suddenly you're relying on him for an indefinite amount of time and you see how much he needs to work on, he looks like a pitcher that would benefit from starting in AAA for you know two or three months at least. And I feel like all of this has come together. And I think on the first podcast, we talked about, Ben, that the Cardinals have pitching depth, but they they Mm -hmm. did not want to dip into it on opening day. And I think that's what we're seeing is they've been hit with the injury bug early before they had these pitchers in AAA who are knocking on the major's door. You have, uh, you know, a a good uh, handful of pitchers. Uh, for Memphis, uh, including some top prospects uh, with Thompson and uh, and I cannot believe Liberator. I, I actually had yeah. the, the Inglorious Bastards gif was in my head right now while I was trying to pronounce <laughs> his name, and I was fighting back doing the Italian pronunciation, Ben, from your tweet. You mean, you mean um, Liberatore. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And I was fighting that back in my brain. You have ruined my pronunciation of his name forever now. Uh, but also Oviedo. And you look at, you know, if it's July and Carlos Martinez goes on the IL with a weird slight ankle sprain, it's almost, well, gee, who should we bring up that's good, you know, that you feel more comfortable with, that you feel is ready uh, to make their major league debut to a greater extent. Um, and now what we're seeing, I think, is, you know, when Carlos is down and Michaelis is down, and actually Michaelis is starting today in Memphis, and it sounds like he might be able to rejoin the rotation uh, if all goes well today. Um, dipping into the depth now, you get, a not quite ready Oviedo, it seems. And then you get John Gant, who's just terrible because he can't throw strikes. And the team just looks so much better. If you've got Michaelis, if you've got Carlos, you have Oviedo developing in AAA along with the other arms. And then, you know, it's it's more of a speed bump uh, rather than a ditch when one of the starters goes on the IL later in the year. So that's, that's what I think I, I learned over the last week. All right. Well, Ben, I actually thought you might take my what I learned because you are a, a noted Tommy Edmonds skeptic, uh, if I if I can uh, uh, label you with that. Uh, and I think this week what I what I learned, or at least what I was reminded of, is that you know Edmonds' profile has a lot of uh, kind of margin for error in it, or at least I guess more specifically, it's pretty dependent on batted ball luck. So. Um, you know, after a really, really strong offensive start to the season, uh, his his WRC plus has dropped below 100 to about uh, 98. I mean, s- still a very, very valuable player to the team, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, you know, you're kind of seeing now what kind of a empty batting average can 
you know, can be essentially. Um, he has a, currently has a 6.7% walk rate. It was the earlier in the year, there was a point where it was up closer to 10 or above, which would really be great. That would really, you know, help him kind of raise the floor on what, what he can do. Uh, and he also, he only has a 10.6% uh, K rate, which is very, very low. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's like Pete Rose territory or something in this era. So, um, anyway, um, but obviously that leaves, uh, you know, the, essentially the rest of his batting profile, because he doesn't hit home runs so much, just to the whims of batted ball luck. So we're kind of seeing a, a downward trend in that. I expect it'll probably trend back upwards again. But, um, you know, just kind of a reminder that he he has, you know, he has that in him, I guess. So um, with that, I think we all sort of agreed that the first uh, topic it made sense to talk about today and, and really probably the biggest news of the week is uh, Albert Pujols, um, as we all expected, signing a contract with the uh, world champion Los Angeles Dodgers. So um, uh, I, I think there's a lot of different ways we could go with that. Um, so Alex, why don't you take us in a direction? Well, I'm obviously a little bummed. I, you know, I think we all, or a lot of us hoped that Somehow, some way, there would have been a very storybook uh, ending or, or something where he's in a Cardinals uniform and, and hitting a home run or two and getting standing ovations, and it's all great. Um, I, I am kind of relieved that the Band-Aid was ripped off somewhat quickly and that we're not going to have another week of just thinking about Albert Pujols and, and whether or not you know this can happen. And even though it is a National League team, so he can't DH, I do think this move makes a lot of sense for Pujols in that, obviously, you know, he doesn't have to uproot his family. Uh, although I guess Ben Godar is a former L.A. resident. You can make the joke about the actual drive from Anaheim to, to Los Angeles. Um, and that is not the easiest thing in the world, I guess. But uh, but well, I'm, guess, I'm, I'm guessing he wasn't living blocks from the stadium in Anaheim. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But it also is a, a destination that makes sense for someone like Albert Pujols. It's an attractive place for Albert Pujols where, you know, he he spent 11 seasons in St. Louis and seemed to be in the postseason uh, almost all the time. What, seven out of 11 years, I believe, uh, whereas went to Anaheim and was in the postseason once and was promptly swept. So I could see why the Dodgers would be a very attractive place for him, why that makes a lot of sense for him. And I never totally bought into the idea that he had made some sort of blanket statement to the league that I have to play every day, which seemed to be what, uh, well, you know, Madden was saying like, look, he wants to play every day. And I think someone else, maybe the, maybe the angels GM kind of reiterated that point. And, a lot of people ran with that. Well, you know, if Albert Pujols wants to play every day, then, you know, no team's going to want him. And I'm like, I, I don't know if I'm ready to believe that. And even if he kind of was upset about his playing time with Anaheim, a team that he has a, now a long history with, that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to demand the exact same amount of playing time on another club. So from that standpoint, um, I, I think this move certainly makes sense for him. Uh, from the Dodgers standpoint, I mean, they have a lot of injuries right now, I guess. I mean, Max Muncy is tradition. Hasn't he historically been okay uh, um, without the platoon advantage? Um, you know, I know he's a lefty, but I thought he always hit lefties somewhat well. I could be wrong on that. Um, I know this year he's struggling a bit, but 
I don't remember hearing this kind of lefty deficiency thing being an issue with the Dodgers in previous seasons. So I think that's probably accurate. Okay. That it seems it seems like it's exacerbated this year because when I, when the reporting happened about why the Dodgers would have signed him, and I saw those really big platoon splits of the LA team against lefties, it surprised me. But I also thought, okay, this is starting to make some sense. Yeah, and and I think also from the Dodgers' perspective that obviously they're they're a little banged up right now. Uh, Pollock's isn't AJ Pollock. You know they they have some guys who who are hurt. He usually is. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they're still talented enough that having or not having Albert Pujols is not going to, I, I think, be the difference maker in their season. And so, therefore, when you add a good clubhouse guy like Albert Pujols, yeah. you would think that would be nothing but almost advantageous to to a roster like theirs. But I, I maybe I'm yeah. just such a homer for Albert Pujols that I will defend defend him and defend a team wanting him on their team um, almost no matter what. Yeah. The, the Dodgers are so good this year. I feel like they're almost going with like NBA style load management, right? Like they're not going to, they're not going to start Harden and uh, Irving and Durant at the same time, but like three times during the season. And then they're all going to show up in the put, like that's what the Dodgers are going to do with, you know, Seager and Betts and, you know, just <laughs> basically. So yeah, the, who, who's hurt and what their record is doesn't seem real important to me because I still think they're easily the best team. But uh, Ben, what about you? What kind of stuck out to you about Pools? It's a fit that makes a lot of sense the more that I think about it. At first, I was like, the Dodgers are loaded. They don't need Albert Pujols, but he's a league minimum guy. He's hyper competitive um, and also very professional uh by all accounts. And so I feel like probably what they are offering to him in terms of playing time had to be appealing because, you know, it's a joke, but it's not. The Dodgers seem to have really bought into load management as a greater concept and also uh, flexibility in terms of platoons. Um, They leverage those as well. And it all seems to go toward the same goal they do it with their pitchers but also perhaps with their everyday players now where it's if you want to win in october you have to be ready to play another month's worth of baseball and if you can keep your team fresh going into october that is a competitive advantage that the dodgers seem to have zeroed in on and if you can start albert pujols predominantly against lefties or bring him in to finish games when the other team brings in a lefty to face Muncie, that's another competitive advantage that they have. And so if you look around the league, I think that their approach to player management and playing time management, uh, as well as their use of advanced uh, metrics and scouting, I think this is a good place for him to be. And frankly, it also allows him to potentially win a World Series and retire. And that has to appeal as well. Um, they're probably the safest bet to win the World Series this year. And so you can't blame Pujols for finding that uh, to be appealing. Yeah, Ben, I'm just, as you're, I think you're right on all those points, but as you're saying it, I'm thinking, what would I have thought three, four years ago if someone told me that Albert Pujols was going to end his career um, being used to keep Max Muncy fresh for the postseason? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that's a great point. 
Um, but it's also when you look at what the Angels wanted to do, you know, I don't think Joe Madden is really that type of a manager and the organization doesn't really seem to have any rhyme or reason to it in terms of hierarchy and decision making. And so he's going from a really weird situation where he kind of had a bat phone to the owner, you know, and now he's going into this very different setup uh, where there very much is a hierarchical setup there where, you know, Roberts is a middle manager, make no mistake about it. You know, he has input in decision making, but the front office makes those decisions. And, um, and what they've done now is they've just given themselves more depth and they've made themselves a little bit better against left-handed pitching. And if you're going toe-to-toe with the Padres in that division, they have increased their chances of avoiding the wild card. And so that also comes with it potentially home field advantage throughout the postseason. And so when you layer all those things on top of each other, it makes a lot of sense. And I am once again jealous of the way the Dodgers are run. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so just speaking for myself, I you know, I was pretty disappointed because I, I wanted to see Albert Pujols again as a Cardinal. Um, and uh, that said, um, it'll be interesting to see how he's used by the Dodgers. And if, in fact, he's there to get some somewhat significant platoon at bats, I think, well, right there, that tells us he was not a fit for the St. Louis Cardinals. Because then you have to ask the question, you know, would you have preferred that they sign Albert Pujols and have him start instead of Paul Goldschmidt against left-handed pitchers. And I do not think anyone's answer to that would be yes. And so, you know, if that's the offer that was there from the Dodgers and whatever, and I've seen back and forth in the reporting about, well, did the, did the Cardinals reach out or was there any communication? Da da da. I think these people always know kind of what the offers are that are, you know, in the ether. So I don't, I don't know. I don't put a whole lot of stock in that. Plus I have no way to confirm those things, but I mean, in a world where the Dodgers were offering platoon at bats, it seems like it was a total non-starter for him to ever come to the Cardinals. Now, if in fact he were to go to the Dodgers and be just that 26th man who, you know, takes, uh, you know, pinch hitting at bats late in games, particularly off left-handed pitching, then I will be pretty disappointed that the Cardinals didn't, didn't move forward to get him in that role, because I do think that would have been a really good fit. But, um, I heard, and actually, it was uh, it was Alan Medlock on the Meet Me at Musical podcast made this point a couple weeks ago that it's you know as fans we're often critical of the front office saying, um, "Gosh, why why don't they want to win more? Why don't they want to win more? You know, why don't they pick up Wong's option? You know, why don't they do these kind of little marginal things?" But then at the same time, we'll sometimes say, "Well, why don't they sign Albert Pujols?" <laughs> Which you know is uh, you know uh, it's it's more of a as as Ben as you put it last week, it's more of a hard overhead kind of thing. Anyway, so I you know I think that was a, a good point Alan made, and I think it's fair for us as fans to acknowledge that you know sometimes our desires for the club's actions are are a bit irrational, and you know maybe in this case they thought you know we wanted them to win more, but in fact, no, we, uh, we wanted this storyline. And that's my biggest thing is just, this is bad storytelling. If this is the way Albert Pujols' career ends. And it's one of the, I think, stupid things about being a baseball fan, because I think no matter what 
aspect of the game we're into, we're really into it for the storytelling and we like it because it's this thing that happens in the real world and is, is random and, and everything it's not scripted, but yet it can often kind of fall into the, you know, the arc of a narrative. And I think that's when we really connect with it. And this would have been just a perfect punctuation on the narrative of Albert Pujols, this great player. And uh, you know, it looks like we're not going to get that perfect ending. So that's always a little disappointing. Um, what else? Any, anything else pools related guys? I will say it is going to be nice just seeing him in the national league again. Um, and if, and if he yeah. is, I guess the Dodgers already played at Wrigley, right? Um, did, was that series uh, in Wrigley? Yeah. Okay. I, Cause I was, yeah, I I was about so. to say, you know, if, if they had a series at Wrigley against the Cubs and the Cubs had a lefty, although do the Cubs have any lefties? I don't think they do, but I was going to, if for some reason pools had a yeah. start at Wrigley field, I was going to tune in and watch that. Yeah, well, they all throw they all throw like eighty two anyway, so I don't know if it matters if they're left or right handed. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, so it, I do like the idea that I'll be able to see a little bit more of him, which could very well be his last year, um, being that he's in the National League, and um, I, I just watch more National League baseball than I do American League baseball. So, yeah, I just feel like National well, League more his home. Uh, no, I think that's a great point, and you know, also. If he in the next you know couple of weeks comes out and makes an announcement and says, "Hey, you know this is it. This is you know the last last trip around the sun," um, you know, then yeah, you might see him you know being gifted the rocking chair in Pittsburgh and all that kind of you know stuff. Like we we rarely seen, um, but with like a big poppy type situation, we have seen it a few times, and it seems like that's a really nice way for a player of this caliber to go out. Um, do you think? there is any chance at all that he ends the season on the St. Louis Cardinals. Yes, there is a chance, but I think it's unlikely. Yeah. I I was going to say no, um, but I will gladly be talked out of that. No. The, the one thing I'm interested to see, I, I feel like, you know, he obviously felt very, uh, mistreated by the angels for not just the fact that this happened, but I think the way that it happened, um, you know, even knowing that they were going to ultimately release him this year, you know, for it to have been done in spring training or done in some way where he was a little more involved in the, there's a lot of ways it could have happened that would have been classier than what the reporting has, you know, come out that, you know, the way it did happen. Um, so you would assume that, in going to the Dodgers, there's been some kind of conversations about that, about, you know, if it's to end there, uh, because, you know, there's a pretty real possibility that, you know, he, he is just cooked and, you know, he, uh, you know, even taking limited at bats and in a Dodger uniform, it's pretty clear he's not there. Now, typically uh, a guy that you pick up, who's just been DFA'd and passed through waivers mid season, you know, if that guy comes in and, is, you know, trash for three and a half weeks, there's a good chance you just release that guy again. But what are the Dodgers going to do in that situation? They've, you know, they would now be the the second team doing that. So, uh, so I don't know. And maybe the Dodgers are just confident enough that they're, you know, they can write it out, even if he does have to slide into that 26th man role, that would be my first guess right there. But, um, you know, I, I guess my hope just in, if, if there's any lingering hope of seeing him in a Cardinals uniform again, you know, if it's late in the season, if it's clear, he's not going to do anything else there, you know, maybe there is kind of a, just a, a nostalgia trade where it doesn't really change anything on the field for either team. But 
you know, the rosters have expanded and, you know, he, you know, rides out a, a few more weeks in St. Louis kind of like, isn't that basically what Griffey did uh, in Seattle or did he have a full season there? I can't remember at the end of his career. I don't think it was a, Hmm, that's a good question. I, yeah, I but he was there at the very end, wasn't yeah, he? Yes, he was. Yeah. I mean, of course, it also speaks to how insignificant it is to everybody outside an individual fan base that even a great player like Ken Griffey Jr., I'm like, didn't he kind of finish up there? I wasn't really paying attention. It was irrelevant to me. So, Oh, oh my goodness. Okay, so he spent 2009 and 2010 in Seattle. Uh, so <laughs> oh, no. I had no idea. Wow. No, I wouldn't have guessed too. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think mine mine is more of a Lloyd Christmas, like you're saying there's a chance. Like it could yeah. happen, but it is yeah. just I think it would almost have to follow like some sort of terrible situation with the Dodgers. But if there's a terrible situation with the Dodgers, do you even want him on your team? Because yeah. that that situation only ends if he's absolutely terrible at the plate. Not that he's been very good this year. Um, but if they're going to pick and choose who he's facing and he doesn't hit, I mean, what, if you're the Cardinals, other than sentimentality and nostalgia, why do you do it? I, you know, it's not like a new star Wars trilogy or something that's going to make $5 billion. You know, you're out here playing baseball games. If it stinks, you know, it's not going to help you. So I, you know, I think you two have actually kind of talked me out of it now, now that I've thought through what would have to happen for him to sign with the Cardinals. And um, I'm definitely in dumb and dumber uh, one in a million territory now of that actually happening. Oh, I feel like I'm more than one in a million, but um, I don't know. I'm also just uh, I'm trying to build my defenses back up after, uh, you know, letting myself be hopeful that this might actually happen here for the last couple of weeks. So I don't want Albert to hurt me again. He's hurt me too many times, too many times before. <laughs> so uh, I think for our second topic here, I mean, I think we really kind of wanted to check in on, you know, what do we think of this team? We're, you know, more than a month into the season. So we're, you know, we're still in a little bit of small sample size theater, but we've seen some ups, we've seen some downs. Um, we've seen some kind of iterations of what this team could be. So I thought an interesting way to do this would be just to go around and talk about what our win total projection is right now. And I don't know, did you guys make like formal win total projections anywhere, like in a written piece or just talking to somebody? I think I see Alex nodding and Ben shaking his head. I did. I, I, I think I said 89 on the podcast, um, okay. the Chirps podcast before the season began, somewhere around that number. I just have a standing 90 win projection for the St. Louis Cardinals. I don't uh, change it. <laughs> I just say they'll probably win 90 games. Nice. And... Nice. All right. Well, I, I usually, my joke is usually that the St. Louis Cardinals are formulated in a lab to win 88 games. So um, that's, <laughs> that's been my number of late. I did look back on a, a Viva Alberto's post and I, I, I was really just, obnoxiously like cagey and nonspecific about it, but I essentially said they would win between 86 and 89 games. So, um, so that was kind of what I, what, so we, now we kind of know what we were all more or less on the record for just to sort of set the stage. Um, the, the betting markets preseason when they opened had the Cardinals at 85 wins. Um, and obviously that fluctuates up and down a little bit as things happen, but that's kind of where they, they started off there. 
And then, of course, Zips had them at, at uh, 81 wins. And Pakoda, of course, had them under 500 at 80 wins. So just for a little context of what the world thought of them. Uh, so, Alex, w- what about you? So you said you, you, you said, did you say you were at 89? Is I, I, I believe that's what I said. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to be very boring and say if I had to pick a number today, I'm going to still say 89. Uh, nothing has really move the needle too much for me to to say this is like a 93 or 94 win team versus a you know or an 81 or 82 uh i think they're obviously a flawed team they're not a this is not the 2000 you know four team or two even the 2013 team but they have you know I, the, I was talking about this recently, just how since Pujols left, the Cardinals have had a lot of teams where they haven't really had elite talent, um, at least in terms of yeah. someone who's has like a 150 WRC plus or or, or whatever. Uh, you know, a few, few things here or there, like Jack Flaherty's second half to the 2019 season notwithstanding or, well, you know. Yeah, didn't you, didn't you, on the Chirps podcast, didn't you say that Pujols's slugging percentage in his last season, which was his worst season in St. Louis, was higher than any Cardinal since then. Do I have that right? Yes. I, I believe he slugged something like, I want to say close to 550 his 2011 season. And the closest since then was Carpenter in 2018, who slugged like 523. Um, but, but what they've been able to do in the 2014 teams, for some reason, really comes to mind is they just have they've had this depth that can fill in and be competent to where other teams might, might find themselves in trouble if they got a, a big injury. And now, you know, I let off the show saying I'm worried about the Paul DeYoung <laughs> injury. I don't know if Sosa quite qualifies in that regard, but hopefully, you know, he's not going to be around. We're not going to have to deal with DeYoung being out for too much longer. Um, unless I missed some recent news on that. I, but I, I do feel as though from, top to bottom on the offensive side of the ball, it's, it's a solid enough team, especially in this division to, to, if not win the division, be absolutely right. They're competing for it with, with Milwaukee at the high eighties. Um, the pitching, the pitching is really, fr- I mean, I, I think they have the highest walk rate in, in all of baseball from uh, both starters and relievers. And they, they don't strike out a lot of guys either. Uh, I think where I try to talk myself into that not being something to freak out about right now is their top three pitchers with Flaherty, Wainwright, and Carlos are pretty much fine in that regard. So if they can figure out, and, and, and KK as well. I, I forgot about KK. Um, so if they can kind of figure out that last rotation spot. And, and this is a question I wanted to ask you guys. And sorry, I don't think this is getting us off topic, but... Um, I, I look at I look at this season and I'm like, believe me, this is not a criticism of Mosaic or saying like I wish Mosaic wasn't here, but I'm kind of I'm kind of nostalgic for a Walt Jockety. Uh, you know, I see Max Scherzer over there in his, his last year of contract with the Washington Nationals, who I think last I checked have about a 10% chance of making the playoffs and whose farm system was recently, I think, called the worst in baseball. And this seems like a prime Walt Jockety being like, I'm going to get that guy for this last three months of the season and we are going to ride him into the playoffs and then we'll see what happens. And so 
I don't know if Mosaic is quite, you know, Mosaic would be quite as ready to kind of figure that trade out as like a Walt Jockety, or maybe I'm just putting way too much in both of their reputations as to what they would be able to pull off. But yeah, I've, I've, I, I look at I look at the Washington Nationals right now, and I look at the Cardinals right now, and I'm kind of missing me some Walt Jockety. <laughs> yeah, well, I feel like uh, Moseliak has drifted a bit in the jockey direction just in the last couple years true, you know yeah. when i again kind of if we're fr- going back to that last Pujols year which is a good endpoint you know being 10 years ago and also being the last point that we had this like superstar player you know what did the cardinals do when that superstar player left they didn't try to find a superstar player to plug back in there and so for most of the 2010s it was uh, uh, you know, late period Carlos Beltran, a Johnny Peralta. It was these kind of, you know, you know, mid-tier, you know, fill-in value, you know, free agent guys to kind of get there. But within the last few years, you know, we've picked up Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado, which are, are you know, really the first, I would say, sort of jockety-esque acquisitions um, since Mo's been been running the thing, so so maybe, and I, I've been you know I've been watching that Scherzer speculation as well. That's another good question. Would you rather if the Cardinal if you had a choice, would you rather the Cardinals had Pujols or Max Scherzer for the rest of the season? That really gets at Allen's uh, question of you know do you want them to win or do you want the best story? I guess because hey, I want the good story, but eh, I kind of like to have Max Scherzer in the rotation. Well, uh, and I don't mean to, I, so we can get to Ben here quickly, but if you want the good story and the good team, I could tell you that Max Scherzer would probably get his 3,000 strikeout in a Cardinals uniform if we were to, because he's at, he's at 2,852 right now. So, yeah. Um, or there's a very good chance it could happen. So, well, and since this is a Cardinals podcast, I'm really hopeful that somewhere in the comments or on Twitter, we'll have a number of people tell us that, you know, their cousin's best friend's lawyer, uh, you know, knows Max Scherzer's family really well. And they heard that he really wants to come to St. Louis and it's going to happen. So it'll be kind of a, I remember about 10 years of Mark Burley related rumors like that. So <laughs> anyway, Ben, sorry, where are you at when projection wise? Um, I... I'm about where I was. Um, I would probably revise it upward because they're at a higher pace right now, uh, having had John Gant in the rotation for about six weeks, and he's not been good, ERA notwithstanding. And so they have somehow managed to have one of the worst pitchers in baseball in their starting rotation in terms of walks and just really pitching performance, yet he somehow has not allowed that many runs, and they've won a handful of those games. And I think when you kind of get that fool's gold, uh, it still counts in the wins total. Even though you can't count on that moving forward, that has happened, and the Cardinals reaped that benefit. And if you'd have told me John Gant was going to pitch as terribly as he has pitched, um, which I didn't think was possible. I did not. I was very low on Gant going into the season, and I didn't think it would be this bad. But if you'd have told me he was going to pitch this poorly and they would be on pace to win, I think you said 93 games at the beginning of the year, I would have taken that. And if you'd have told me the relievers were going to walk this many guys and they were going to be on pace to pitch 93 or to win 93, you know, 92 to 94 games, I would have told you you were nuts too because I, I would have going into the year, I think we all thought the the bullpen and the relievers were going to be the strong point of the team. And if you'd have said we were going to have this much of a, 
an issue with free passes, it would have been very concerning. And so what it comes down to is what do you think is going to happen moving forward? Well, right now they have a very strong foundation to win 92 plus games um, because they're probably going to get Miles Michaelis back within the next two weeks and Gant or Oviedo goes away, um, at least for a period of time. Gant probably for the rest of the season. Um, and then you look at the bullpen situation and they do have to work some things out, but almost every season you have to work out an arm or two in the bullpen. So that's not terribly surprising, but you have to ask yourself, what do you think is going to happen moving forward? I think Reyes is the biggest concern because he's never in his major league career really shown the ability to throw strikes at a, at a good rate. Um, but then you look at Gallegos you know, I feel pretty confident he'll be good moving forward. You know, you can go down reliever by reliever. I mean, Tyler Webb, you probably don't feel very good about. Miller, you probably don't feel very good about. Um, but I think there's reason to believe that the bullpen will improve. Um, and so I would revise all of that upward um, just because they've done well so far. Also, they've won a bunch of games with Justin Williams hitting very poorly in a corner outfield spot. Um, you know, now how long is Tyler O'Neill going to be able to keep slugging with his 1.9% walk rate, which is completely insane. Um, I don't know. He's, he's such a weird profile. Uh, but if Bader's, you know, in that 95 weighted runs created plus to 105 weighted runs created plus, that's a great player. Carlson looks like he's everything he's advertised to be. Arenado has been everything he's advertised to be. You have to think Goldschmidt is going to improve. You have to think DeYoung's going to improve. Edmund's going to deflate some more. Uh, he's as empty an offensive profile as you're going to find in baseball today. And it looks like it's only going to get emptier because of his trending ground ball uh, predilection, uh, which I think is because he doesn't take pitches. And pitchers know that he will swing at non-strikes and they can get ground balls on that. And if he gets on base, whatever will take it. Um, and so, you know, Edmund's probably, uh, Edmund and O'Neill are probably the biggest question marks moving forward in the lineup. Uh, O'Neill, obviously a bigger question than Edmund, but uh, all of that taken together if you'd have taken this mix on the pitching side and said, this is what it's going to be. How do you think the team will be in mid at May? I would have told you that they would have a losing record just based on the walks and the injuries. And so the fact that they have been able to overcome that to date makes me feel good moving forward because I think that the pitching will be better moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going to revise upward as well. So if I, and I was again, squishy in my total, but I think I was basically saying 88 and I, I think this is, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say a 91 win team here. I think they're more than a 90 win team. And, um, you know, I, we've kind of seen a few periods already this year for the Cardinals. They started out right around that, like kind of 500 or just below it kind of territory for the first couple weeks. So it was kind of that, like, oh, geez, maybe Pakota got this right. Then they went on a real winning streak, um, you know, uh, piled up a lot of games. And here, you know, just recently, of course, in the San Diego series, we've seen a little bit of, a, you know, not performing so well. And some things, you know, Adam Wainwright, again, a guy who's really susceptible to batted ball luck, you know, having a pretty unlucky day, et cetera. So we've kind of seen him reset. 
I kind of feel like we've seen the full run of the St. Louis Cardinals already, and we're just going to kind of continue to see this cycle repeat for most of the season. So I think we'll see, you know, some little below 500 for a while. We'll see some, you know, uh, bounce back streaks, and then we'll see kind of reset and sort of go through that again. So, yeah, they're on pace currently to win 93, and I haven't projected just a, a smidge below that. For me, and again, I don't think it's, I think it's too early to say that, you know, Bader and O'Neill are, you know, solutions, permanent solutions in the outfield or anything like that, but they're doing well so far. And if they keep hitting like this, um, I think this is definitely a a 90 win team. And, and uh, we don't know, but I'm, I'm really encouraged by both of them. Maybe not, they won't continue to hit quite this well, but I think it's, it's looking to me like they're going to end on the more positive side of what their projections would have been at the beginning of the year. Um, the other thing, I guess, just going into this is the NL Central, um, I think the Brewers are pretty good. And I think the rest of the team is pretty much or the rest of the division is pretty much trash. You know, um, I think the Reds are at best, uh, you know, a 500 team um, full of despicable rogues. And, uh, you know, <laughs> of course, the, the Pirates are terrible. And so, um, you know, I just uh, there was a there was a, uh, you know, some people projected basically everybody but the pirates to be kind of in the mix together. Oh, the Cubs. I forgot to mention the Cubs. The Cubs are garbage too. And I think the Cubs are going to absolutely crater here pretty soon this season. So it with the Cardinals road was a lot harder when, you know, the Reds, the Cubs, the Cardinals and the Brewers are all like, you know, at or a little above 500 type teams. That would have been a season that it was tough for them to push into that 90 win range. I don't think that's the case. So that's kind of where I see them, see them going. So um, anything else win projection wise, or should we, uh, should we crack open a box score of your, well, just real quick. I wanted to say that I, when Ben said Tyler O'Neill had a 1.9% walk rate, I was like, that can't be right. I know it's low, but there's no way it's 1.9%. And sure enough, I, I, I corroborated Ben's information. It is in fact, 1.9%. Uh, well, I, as the. As the old adage goes, you can't walk off Vancouver Island. So, uh, <laughs> so. Well, I'm glad you yeah. checked, Alex, because yeah. I had the same thought. I thought that can't be right. But knowing Ben, I was like, I don't think he's going to, he's not going to go double barrels without this information at hand. Well, I, I noted something on Twitter a couple weeks ago that the only Cardinals recently to ever slug above 500 and have and on base below 300 uh, is is basically Tyler O'Neill when he did it, I think, last year or maybe a couple years ago, and then Craig Paquette, which which checks out if, if you remember Craig Paquette. <laughs> yes. Oh, fondly remember Craig Paquette. <laughs> he was a he was the John Nagowski. Of, he was better than John yeah. Nagowski, but just his look and profile feels Nagowski-esque to me. Although didn't Craig Paquette play second base for a while? I, I mean, I'm sure he did. It was, he was Craig Paquette played wherever the manager asked him because <laughs> yeah. that's the only way he was staying in the major leagues. Okay, I, I might be wrong. I might just be thinking, had Tony Larusa been the manager at the time, he certainly would have played Craig Paquette at second base at some point. So, um, all righty. Uh, well, speaking of former Cardinals and uh, uh, teams of the past, uh, Alex, you brought us. Uh, amazingly interesting game to look at today as a box score of yours. So I'd look, could you kind of tell us why, why this game? What about this game? <laughs> okay. To you? So I, I picked a game from June 6th, 1990. 
And uh, first off, and I was thinking about this today, you might be able to make the case that this was the last great moment of Whitey Herzog's time in St. Louis because he he would go on to resign exactly one month later on July 7th, 1990 or quit or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason why I thought about this game is I remember this game happening, but but I didn't actually watch it. Uh, the next day I was at a friend's house and his dad, uh, I, we were in his backyard. His dad came out and said, did you guys hear about that Cardinals game last night? And we were like, no, no, what happened? And he kind of went through like how wild it was. And he said, you know, and then the Phillies, you know, went up a couple of runs in the ninth, but then the Cardinals stormed back to tie it and went to extra innings and the Phillies scored two runs again, but then the Cardinals scored three runs. And then my friend and I were like, that's awesome. And giving each other high fives and stuff like that. And it made me think like, that was kind of how you consumed sports back then. We were getting excited and high-fiving about a game that had probably been over for 12 or 15 hours that we didn't even know, you know, had no, we didn't even know it had happened you know, because, you know, we, all the games weren't on TV back then and, and I hadn't checked the paper that morning. And so mm-hmm. that's that was sometimes how you learned about a game. It could have been hours after it happened. It could have been a day or two after it happened. And yeah. and. For some reason, and maybe it was because it was the 1990 season when the Cardinals were very bad, the, the only time since 1918 that they finished in last, that I remember this one cool, good moment. Um, and so I don't, this box score has always stuck in my head. And of course, with a great website like Baseball Reference, you really only need a few details and you can find it if, you, if you're stubborn enough to keep searching. And so I... Um, I think a couple months ago, just went on, down on rabbit hole looking for this game, knowing it was around this time frame, uh, 1990 or 91 or something like that. And, and I finally found it. So, so that's why I picked this game. But that was kind of how it worked back then. And this is a beautiful box score. Just if you go up and down the lineups, you have the uh, kind of the last remnants of the Whitey Ball era. You, but you still have Vince, Ozzy, and Willie. But then you have kind of like the new guys like Pedro Guerrero, uh, Todd Zeal playing catcher at the time as you know because he was a catcher when he came up you still have Pendleton over at third Jose Okendo at second um, let's see who else do we have here uh, we'll get to some other great names too but the Phillies have what's kind of the model of the team that went on to I guess win the pennant a couple years later uh, at least on the offensive side of the ball they have uh I don't remember if Von Hayes was on that pennant winning team, but certainly, you know, Kruk and Darren Dalton, uh, the two guys. Yeah, and, Di- and Dykstra. Was Dykstra and- on that? I couldn't remember. I thought he was. I thought he was on that pennant winning team, but I couldn't totally remember. I think he was. I think he was. I just so he's part of the kind of, uh, you know, mullet headed uh, dirtbag uh era there in philly so i guess i just assume so but (laughs) and um i'll say one other thing about this game then i'll I'll let uh you two talk about it for a little bit but the final score was 12 11 and it went 10 innings and back then even as a a game where the score was 12 11 and win the extras you could still kind of count on the game only lasting like three hours. You know, games were just so much quicker then. So I was expecting that to be the case here, but that is not the case. This game went over four hours. And I was I was very curious as to why that was, even with extra innings and a 12-11 score. And I did see that there were 11 different pitchers, um, <laughs> you know, appearing at some point in this game. Uh, and 
and great names too, especially on the car. You know, these are names we all recognize. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that's kind of the stuff that jumped out. Oh, and I have one more comment on the Phillies roster, which is they had a player named Ricky Jordan playing for them at the time. And I collected Ricky Jordan baseball cards because someone told me, it's not true, but someone told me he was a cousin of Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan's <laughs> pull, Michael Jordan's pull at the time in 1990 was so strong. If you told me such and such was a cousin of Michael Jordan, I will start collecting that person's baseball cards. Um, I, th- I soon learned that was not true. And he was not, not Michael Jordan's cousin and had nothing to do with Michael Jordan, but well, I hope I hope you meet Ricky Jordan someday, so you can tell him that because you're probably the only person who collected his baseball cards ever. So, you know, even if it was uh, for uh, a misunderstanding, uh, I'm sure he'd still appreciate your your time and dedication. So, I'm guessing Ricky Jordan cards are probably relatively easy to collect as well. You kind of got one in every pack. So they they were not hard to find. That that is true, and um, I, I think the owner of the baseball card shop even knew I liked Ricky Jordan, and he would save them for me if I came in and, and sell them to me. So uh, he was a good guy. He wouldn't you know he wasn't price gouging me on Ricky Jordan cards, but. <laughs> Good, good. Uh, ben, anything you want to say about the rosters overall, or should we dive into the uh, play-by-play? Uh, yeah, uh, Von Hayes jumps out at me because uh, we have summer ball uh, teams here in the state of Iowa, and uh, probably the most prominent one is in Clorinda, the Clorinda A's. And every year they have a winter banquet to raise money for the team. Um, and my mom got me tickets uh longer ago now than I care to remember, but probably about 10 years ago. And every year at the banquet, they have uh, two major liggers come and your ticket is good for dinner and getting uh, one item autographed by each of the big liggers. And every year, one of the big liggers is Ozzie Smith. Uh, He is the most famous participant uh, in the Clorinda A's program. He comes back every year. Uh, and the year that I went, the other participant was Von Hayes. And so uh, both of them played for the Clorinda A's in Iowa uh, when they were in college before they became big leaguers. And both of them also, uh, the experience was means enough to them that they returned to Clorinda uh, to help the baseball program, the summer team, the A's, uh, raise money. And I got to meet Von Hayes, uh, and I also got to meet Ozzie Smith. And um, actually, my mom had a friend whose husband is the same age as Ozzie, and they work construction together. And so I got to go hang out with Ozzie at the bar afterwards. And it wound up uh, me, Connie, Ozzie, and actually the friend of one of my high school teammates, uh, or excuse me, the dad of one of my high school teammates. It was the four of us, and Ozzie was just telling us stories, like just baseball stories. And uh, and some were from Clarinda, some were from the minors, some were from the majors. Uh, but my favorite one was from Clarinda. When uh, when you play for the Clarinda A's, you also get a summer job. And so Ozzy's was working construction uh, with John and Connie, who I, I obviously was not working construction in the late 70s because I was not even born yet. Uh, but so then they were laughing because they had to Uh, demo a concrete wall and so they had sledgehammers they demo this concrete wall and then they had to lift the chunks of concrete and throw it in the back of a pickup truck and take it to dump it outside Clorinda probably 
and Ozzy refused to lift up the concrete blocks. And when Connie was like, Ozzy, why aren't you lifting up the concrete blocks? And he goes, Connie, because I got million dollar hands. And so when they're telling the story, they're doing the give and take because they've done the story so many times. And Ozzy's laughing. And then Connie just nails the punchline is he looks at me and he goes, Ben, he undervalued his hands. <laughs> and that's and seeing Von Hayes just immediately took me back to that because uh, they both played for Clarinda. It meant a lot to him. And uh, if you ever have a chance, the Clarinda A's banquet is a lot of fun. It is very much a throwback to small town summer league baseball. And you might get to hear a good story about a major leaguer. And so that immediately jumped out to me about the box score. Man, that's an, that, that's a story that this box score is going to have trouble uh, living up to. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great story. The, the whole trip and experience was just really just a whole bunch. Of, like you're pinching yourself. Like, is this really happening? Cause we went through and I like got his autograph and I shook his hand and we're like, you know, Ozzy Smith, I have an Ozzy Smith signed baseball in my hand. You know, I, my favorite childhood player. And then Connie goes to me, he goes, Ben, don't worry. We'll have a chance to talk to him more at the bar after the dinner. And I was like, what? <laughs> and then <laughs> did we ever? And uh, it was a lot of fun. So, but this, this box score is also a lot of fun. Uh, as Alex said, I really enjoy, it's almost like, uh, a passing of the baton in a way from the whitey ball Cardinals to those very good early nineties uh, Phillies teams. Like you can kind of see it right there on the box score as the Phillies are becoming a juggernaut and the Cardinals are fading away, uh, you know, seeding their juggernaut status. Well, they, I guess they probably had already seeded it, but you know, you yeah. can see kind of that shadow of 87 there. Um, and then also you can see the shadow of like 93 for the Phillies and it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, and on the baseball reference page for this game where you can see the win probability chart, it looks like a child's drawing of a mountain range because this game was like <laughs> up and down and back and forth for the whole game. So this would have been a good game to watch. So why don't we jump into it? So, uh, in the uh, bottom of the first, so the Cardinals are the home team. It's in St. Louis. So uh, the first inning, uh, Phillies left two runners on, but didn't score. In the bottom of the first, uh, uh, Willie McGee uh, knocked in. Uh, well, Vince Coleman singled on a, uh, a <laughs> to third base, and in parentheses it says "bunt to weak third base." And I think we can all picture exactly what happened <laughs> right there. So, um, so, so Vince Coleman um, got on base. One of the only ways that he was physically capable of doing it by laying down a bunt and then hauling ass. Uh, he stole third base. Then he, or sorry, he stole second base. Then he stole third base, and then uh, he scored on a sack fly from Willie McGee. So every uh, old timey uh, baseball announcer right now would just be beside themselves at the, the run manufacturing that the, the whitey ball Cardinals did in that first inning there. Um, so, uh, so we had a one nothing game for the Cardinals uh, and for a game that was going to have so much scoring, it actually stayed that way until the uh, top of the fourth. Does one of you want to take that, take it away there? Ben, you want to take that away? You got yeah. the game up. Yeah, well, you uh, you know, Vaughn Hayes had a had a pretty good year that year, and he led off with a walk, and then uh, advanced, and then Ricky Jordan uh, walked, and then there was a double steal. So we've got 
some really good small ball going on here. And then something that uh, Ricky Horton and John Rooney would love. John Cruck then grounded out and scored a run. Uh, so that was, you know, another nice piece of manufacturing there. Uh, and that was followed by Charlie Hayes hitting a single and knocking Jordan in uh, to give the Phillies uh, the lead there. And uh, then in the uh, bottom of the fourth, uh, Terry Pendleton hit a double. Todd Zeal singled him in. And then here we are. We've been uh, making fun of uh, Vince Coleman. But after an intentional walk to Jose Akendo and a walk uh, by Greg Matthews, the pitcher, Vince Coleman hit a double uh to right field that uh, scored two runs and pushed Matthews to third. And I could not help but wonder if Coleman would have had a triple on this play if Matthews, the pitcher, were not running in front of him. Mm. You know, in Little League, this happens a lot where you have the really fast kid hits the ball in the gap and the slower kids in front of him and he almost catches the slower kid. So that made me wonder uh, how close Vince Coleman would have come on that play to catching the pitcher. Um, and then uh, Ozzie Smith came up. He singled uh, to left field. And surprise, surprise, Coleman scored as well as Matthews. And so uh, this was sort of the beginning of the pendulum swinging back and forth between these teams. And that uh, was before the game was even half over. Uh, and and uh, Alex, do you want to walk us through what happened after that? Sure. Uh, first, though, I want to know, I, I want to know how often – players are being intentionally walked back in 1990 because, and I don't want to, I don't want to give the ending away, but in the 10th inning, both managers intentionally walked a guy to load the bases. Uh, both of them did it. Um, and so, and I, and there was an, and you just mentioned intentional walk last inning. Yeah. I, that's something I want to look up later is how, how often managers were intentionally walking uh, uh, players back in 1990 as compared well, to today. But. The, the force out at any base seems to have a very strong appeal to managers. Like Schilt, it's, like, it's almost like catnip to them. Because you see Schilt do this all the time. And it makes me wonder if it's something that George Kissel told him to do. You know, like, <laughs> that, oh, you can get that point. force out at, you know, any base. <laughs> well, and, and the people there are intentionally walking. I mean, Jose Okendo, I think in the 10th, it's Ozzie Smith. You know, look, Ozzie... Yeah. Ozzy brought things to, to the plate, um, you know, as a hitter, but he's probably not a guy you need to intentionally walk all that often unless well, and we, behind we, him. And he, he never batted in front of the pitcher. We, right. And we, we love Jose Okendo. Jose Okendo is an absolute Cardinals legend. Um, one of my very favorite players of all time. Jose Okendo was not a good hitter. I cannot imagine why you would have ever intentionally walked Jose Okendo. There was a pretty good chance he was going to get himself out. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I'll go ahead and skip to the seventh inning, the top of the seventh, where it's now seven to two because of a, I believe, a solo home run from Terry Pendleton uh, yep. back in the bottom of the fifth. So we, we are now in the top of the seventh and the good guys are winning seven to two. But our friend, uh, if you want to call him that, Ricky Horton is on the mound and things are about to go badly. Uh, he gives up first a single to Charlie Hayes and then another single to Dickie Thon. And then Dalton comes up and hits a double and Hayes scored and Thon uh, moves to third base. 
And then Randy Reddy, uh, a guy I only remember because of baseball cards, hits a double and scores both Thon, um, Dickie Thon, and Dalton. So it is now a seven to five lead. Um, and later in that inning, then Ron Jones comes up with two outs and he hits a single and he scores Randy Reddy. And so the inning eventually ends with a John Cruck flyout um, after Lee Smith has entered the game. And I thought that was interesting. Uh, Lee Smith came into this game in the bottom of the seventh inning, or excuse me, the top of the seventh inning. Um, and one, I thought it was interesting because they brought him in at a very important time, a very high leverage situation, which seems kind of like a, a more new school approach to your closer. But then if you, if you look at the box score, he came out and pitched the eighth and the ninth as well. Um, I think he ended up facing 14 total batters or something like that. Uh, and, and he was the, he was like the closer back then. And so I thought it was interesting that he was brought in, in the seventh inning, but anyway, he got John Cruck to uh, fly out and that ended the inning with the Cardinals still clinging to a seven, six lead. And um, it started to, this is kind of, I guess, well, I guess it's not till the ninth inning where things get totally crazy. Um, in the eighth inning, the Phillies do tie it up though. Lee Smith still in the game and Lenny Dykstra hits a single and scores Dickie Thon. And then the score stays knotted at seven heading into the ninth inning. If one of you wants to take it from there. Yeah, I'll jump in. So we're here, we're in the top of the ninth inning now. And so Lee Smith is in for his, his third inning of, of work already, or, you know, uh, including the partial inning, his third inning of work. And I actually remember writing a Viva Alberto's piece at one point and looking back at Lee Smith and he was, he was really the first like one inning reliever. So, I mean, earlier in his career, of course, he started for a little while. And then with the Cubs, there was a little while he was a multi-inning reliever. But by the time he got to St. Louis, he was very consistently a one inning guy, even in an era where other guys who were, you know, closer types did still fairly often maybe pitch, you know, a little bit of the eighth and ninth. So this, I, I'm just sure this is a pretty atypical thing for him to be out there for his, his third inning. And it shows because he, uh, he walks the first batter, Von Hayes, and then he gives up uh, a home run to Ron Jones, who I don't even remember from baseball cards. Those are just, those are just names on the screen in front of me. And uh, so, um, so at this point uh, now uh, the Phillies have come all the way back. They have a nine to two, or excuse me, a seven, a nine to seven lead. Uh, heading into the bottom of the ninth. Uh, ben, you want to take it from there? Well, uh, Jose Akendo leads things off, and he strikes out looking. Uh, then Dave Collins draws a walk, and then Vince Coleman grounds out. Uh, so, you know, the Phillies really have the Cardinals' backs against the wall here. Uh, Ozzie Smith is up. He's facing uh, Blackjack Roger McDowell, who would later go on to fame with the White Sox. Um, and he singles, uh, to deep second base, which is another fun notation in the box score, uh, which scored Collins. Uh, then Ozzy stole second with Willie up. Uh, and then you have to feel that maybe McDowell gave Willie the old unintentional intentional walk. Cause he walked, uh, which brought up Pedro Guerrero, uh, who singled, uh, to score Ozzy and push McGee to third. Then we had another intentional walk of Terry Pendleton. <laughs> uh, and I, I really don't understand that. 
because it was to get to Todd Zeal. I, I don't know that there's that much of a difference between them in 1990, uh, but it worked. Uh, they got the force out at third base, the ground out, third base, unassisted force out. So not quite the force out at any base with the bases loaded, but a force out at any base but home. And it, and it kind of worked, I guess, uh, in the bottom of the ninth, and that pushed us into extras. And Ben, I'm only going to quibble with one thing you said there because oh. Roger McDowell was all, already famous for spitting on Kramer. So I would just like to point that out. So, <laughs> okay. <you know. laughs> uh, Alex, uh, extra innings, I think, is where this game really gets especially crazy. And I know the argument we have for the start the runner on second thing, of course, is it it forces some action. That was not a problem in this game, which <laughs> predates the start the runner on second. So you want to take it away? Sure. Uh, our, our good friend Frank DePino on the mound. I, I remember Frank DePino well, but I didn't remember him so well to realize he actually spent four seasons with the Cardinals, 89 through 92. I would have, wow. I if you had asked me to guess, I would have said like, 90 and 91 or, or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, he had a pretty long stint with the Cardinals. Great name. Sounds like something from like a, uh, like the uh, Copacabana scene in uh, Goodfellas where he's leading the people <laughs> and, you know, introducing everybody. And, and this is Frank DePino over here, but he, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Darren Dalton leads off with a single. And again, it's, we're not at nine. Darren Dalton leads off with a single. Roger McDowell bunts, uh, Dalton over to second base. And then, so we have, we have runner on second, one out, Lenny Dykstra is up. What do you do? You intentionally walk him. All right. And, and then, and we sh- I feel as though we should have mentioned this earlier, but second baseman for the Phillies this day was Tommy Herr. So we basically have the whole core of, well, minus Jack Clark. We have the whole core of that great 1987 team on the field this day. And Tommy Herr comes up. And he grounds out, but push, uh, but moves the runners, moves Dalton and Dykstra up uh, to third and second base. So now we have two and outs. And again, Ricky, Ricky Horton, uh, you know, in the the dugout now, icing his arm, just really happy to see the, him move the runner over <laughs> yeah. right there, even though he just gave up four runs earlier in the game. Sorry. <laughs> no, that, that is right. So now we have now we have two outs, runners on second and third. Von Hayes is up. Another intentional walk. There's the intentional walk to load the bases and the second of, of this half inning. So they intentionally walk Von Hayes to load the bases for Sil Campusano. Uh, that is a guy I, like you said earlier about the guy's name I already forgot, uh, Ron Jones. I do not remember Sil Campusano. Um, but you have Sil Campusano coming up with the bases loaded uh, because uh, Whitey gave Von Hayes the free pass. And he singles off Frank DePino, and he scores both Dalton and Dykstra. And so now we have the Phillies with what seems like a pretty sizable 11-9 lead in extra innings. And John Cruck ends that inning. Uh, Frank DePino gets him to strike out. And so we head to the bottom of the 11th with the Phillies up 11-9. And another, uh, I, I think, fun Cardinal uh, who who – kind of gets lost in the shuffle of the uh, transition from the Whitey Ball era to those early 90s teams is Milt Thompson. And he leads off He leads off that bottom of the 10th. And Milt, Milt hits a single to center field. And Jose Okendo comes up right behind him, and he hits a single and pushes, uh, and pushes Milt Thompson over second base. And then you have Denny Walling. Denny Walling comes up, and he singles. And Milt Thompson scores. 
and Jose's at second base, and and we got Denny Walling on first. And so we have two men on, no outs. Cardinals have already scored, so they're really cooking up something good here. Vince Coleman comes up, and he bunts, but he he pushes um, – oh, I'm sorry. I almost forgot. And Ben, Ben Godard, you would have been mad about this. But yes. Rex Hudler came in to pinch run for Jose Okendo. Um, so now we have Rex Hudler on second base, and we have Denny Walling on first base, and Vince Coleman then bunts them over to third and second base, respectively. And then what happens? We have runners on – Second and third. And this one is, I guess, kind of defensible if you really want those force outs. I, I do sort of get it. They intentionally walk Ozzie Smith to load the bases for Willie McGee. And so Willie McGee comes up with one out in the, in the bottom of the 10th. And the uh, Cardinals are down one run. And he hits a double. And he scores both Hudler and Walling to win the game. And, and that's it. And the game ends right there with the Cardinals with a 12-11 victory. So if, if it was hard following that, basically what happened is the Phillies scored two runs in the top of the ninth to take a lead, a two-run lead on the Cardinals, only to see the Cardinals then tie it up. So then the Phillies scored two more runs in the top of the 10th, and the Cardinals scored three runs and win the game. And, and I have to say, the intentional walk in the bottom of the 10th is one of the few truly justifiable intentional walks because Mm -hmm. Ozzie Smith is not going to score in this game, right? Like, I guess there could be some weird happening where he might, but you're doing this to set up the double play to end the inning. If Willie McGee gets a hit, which he did, you know, he's going to score two runs, you know, no matter what. And Ozzie Smith is just going to advance to third, and he's just a footnote in this game. And so, uh, that's a good point. I've never been a big fan of intentional walks, but that's one of the ones where it's a little bit more defensible in my mind. Um, and I also, yeah. I have to confess that Ricky Horton is a 1980s Cardinal to me. And so, Alex, when you sent us a 1990 box score and I saw Ricky Horton's name, I was like, Ricky Horton was still on the Cardinals in 1990? Like, that can't be right. And I brought up his Fangraphs page, and, you know, this was the end of his career. This was the last year of his career. And I was, my eyes just about popped out of my head because in 1990, he had a 9.3 strikeout percentage and an 11.4 walk rate. So he actually had more walks than strikeouts in 1990, his final year as a player, which I did not know. And so I found that really weird and bizarre. And it also made me ask the question, why are we asking this guy to analyze baseball? Um, You know, (laughs) what does he really know about it? I'll be honest. I enjoy Brad Thompson's analysis, and and Brad Thompson was not the you know in the top tier of pitchers I've ever watched as well. A couple things in those last couple of innings that I I noted, um, and Alex, I don't know if you mentioned this or not, but uh, so Roger McDowell was uh, was pitching the the tenth inning for the uh, uh, for the Phillies, and so he was in his second inning of work. But for that final at bat against Willie McGee, they actually brought in starter Terry Mulholland to to face him. And so, um, and I mean, I can't see, so I don't, I mean, he was definitely a starting pitcher that season. I don't know if maybe this was like after an injury or some, or, you know, some moment where he was working there, but my guess is they just 
brought in a starting pitcher who was rested to pitch that because they'd, you know, burned through so much bullpen already. Um, and he performed like a guy who's not used to <laughs> not used to pitching at the end of a, of a 10 inning game uh, and promptly, uh, you know, gave up a two RBI double. The, the other the other point I wanted to ask or question, I guess, is in the top of the 10th, we had in that bat between Sil Camposano and Frank DePino. And I'm just curious, <laughs> is that the most Italian pitcher batter matchup in, in Major League history? I, I almost made a comment about that. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I felt I already had spent all that sort of uh, with the, the Goodfellas comment when I brought up DePino earlier. I didn't want to go back to that well. But, yes, I that's a that's a that's an amazing matchup right there. I mean, I'm sure in the 20s and 30s, there were some like, you know, Red Sox Yankees games that had some absolutely right. spectacular Italian on Italian face offs. But that, that one is, is worth noting. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Alex, thank you so much. What a fantastic game. I mean, that has a little bit of a uh, little bit of everything to it. So, um, oh, the one other story reminded me, actually, uh, I have a Milt Thompson autograph on like a three by five card because my aunt ran into him at the mall in St. Louis one time. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> hey, uh, my son's a big fan. We, and it must've been like all that she had in her purse or something. So it's like a, just a three by five file card that says Milt Thompson on it. But, um, but I do have that and, uh, and cherish it to this day. So, <laughs> all righty. Well, we, we've, uh, we've gone a little long. Uh, it's been really enjoyable talking with you guys and uh, Alex, thank you so much. But, uh, as we wrap up, we usually talk about what we're looking for. We actually have another off day coming up uh, on Thursday, so uh, um, and we're we're planning a, a special episode uh, with a with a guest for that. We're going to be be a little non traditional. So so Alex, normally we'd say what are you looking for um, before the next off day, but since that's only two days away, I think we can broaden it out and say what are you what are you looking for in the next week or so. I'm going to keep my eye on Jack Flaherty. If, uh, you know, if you conveniently kind of just get rid of his first start, he's, he's putting together a, a very, very good season, at least run production wise. I mean, I mean, I think I was playing around with game logs and again, to get rid of that first start and he has something like a 1.4 ERA and, um, his peripheral stats don't exactly jump off the page. Uh, I mean, they're still very good, but for, for that sort of you know, run prevention production, but I just want to, I'm going to keep my eye on him to see if like, you know, do we have something pretty special brewing here? And, um, what, what could a a Jack Flaherty season of 180, 190 innings pitched look like if you feel like he's kind of on from the beginning, uh, as 2019, you know, it, it really, we really felt like he didn't kind of hit his stride until July. And so, um, yeah, I, I just want to keep, Keep my eye on Jack Flaherty. All right. All right. Ben, how about you? Uh, I am going to be keeping an eye on Tyler O'Neill's plate approach. We touched on his walk rate a little bit earlier. It's a minuscule 1.9%, uh, but it's not just walk rate. Uh, he seems to be driving the ball a little bit more to right field and, and right center field. And so I'm very interested to see uh how his plate approach changes when pitchers recognize that maybe they can't just throw the breaking ball on the plate uh, and have him swing and miss, uh, and they have to get him to expand off the plate. And then what does he do in response to that? Uh, 
and I, I feel like that is coming, uh, and I'm interested to see if it happens sooner than later, um, and when it starts to happen, how he adjusts, if at all, um, to pitchers uh, trying to get him to chase breaking balls off the plate away because of success he's having. Uh, you know, he seems to just be letting the ball get a little bit deeper, and with his physique and his strength, he's able to drive the ball in a way that a lot of batters can't. And so now that he is kind of establishing that, can he keep doing it when pitchers try to go about it a different way than how they were able to get him out over the last couple of years? And so that's what I'm going to be watching. Oh, nice. That's interesting. Um, I uh, kind of hearkening back to uh, Alex's, uh, what have we learned from the beginning? I'm going to be watching to see if anyone can step in to fill the Paul DeYoung shaped hole in the lineup. And there's kind of a handful of ways that this could happen. Um, you know, we've seen them move Edmund to short to get Carpenter in at second base. That seems like that kind of makes sense as a, a plan A if you're still, you know, thinking, well, Matt Carpenter's got this better batted ball profile than his results, etc. Maybe this is kind of where it'll click. But, you know, Carpenter just continues to struggle to manifest any of that batted ball data into um, actual, you know, hits and runs and things that help you win baseball games. So, you know, if that doesn't happen, um, obviously Edmundo Sosa has, has been with the team for a while now. We had Max Moroff just join the team. Um, those are both guys that could slot in either at second or short, depending on where the team decides they prefer uh, Edmund relative to those guys. Uh, you know, one guy down at AAA that I've been kind of curious about for a while is Evan Mendoza, um, who has you know, really went from being um, more of a corner guy to, you know, he's played a fair amount of shortstop there now. And I mean, he's kind of positioned to be a sort of multi-position potentially guy. So he's, he's another, you know, just potential guy out there who maybe could work his way in at some point there. But, um, you know, I'm just curious to see if they can find, you know, anything, uh, you know, useful um, to to plug in there, or if that's just basically going to be like, you know, when you're uh, in a little league game and you've only got eight. And so you get the bottom of the lineup and you have to take an out, you know, because uh, it's also looking like that could be where it is with Paul DeYoung out. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a lot harder to win a game with uh, with only eight, eight batters in your lineup. So anyway, that is what I'm going to be looking for. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really a blast to have you on and chat baseball with you. Yeah, thank you all so much for having me. I've loved this podcast since you all started it. And so, yeah, I'm honored to be here. Oh, well, that's very kind of you. And uh, obviously you have... To, now, you you guys, Chirps, you just did your 100th episode not too long ago. Am I right about that? Yes. And then because my, my co-host thought it would be a good idea to get married, which, fair enough, um, she... We've, we've had, we've had a lot of scheduling conflicts. So we've, we've, it's been a long steady march to try to get to 110, but hopefully we'll get there eventually, I guess. Well, I, I would be surprised if there's anybody who listens to us that isn't aware of your podcast already. But if by chance anyone's not, um, the Chirps podcast is really among my very, very favorite Cardinals podcast. It's one that I listen, as soon as I see one pop into my feed, I listen to, I just always love listening to, to you and Tara. So I would encourage anybody uh, who hasn't possibly to, to check that out as well. So um, Ben, anything else before we wrap up today? 
Uh, no, thanks, uh, Alex, a lot for joining us. Uh, it's great to see you again. Uh, keep up the great work. Trips is really wonderful. Um, I enjoy it as well. And uh, now we have our first official guest and our first official friend of the podcast um, in, in that turn, sense of the definition. So uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, the box score viewer was really great. I really enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully we're able to have you on again uh, sometime later this year. Yeah. So that will uh, that'll wrap us up today. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, Thursday is another off day, so we will be um, back in your feed in uh, just a couple days here with uh, with another Cardinals off day podcast. Uh, we'll see you then. <laughs>